If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, I'm going to do a, a book overview sermon today. So we're going to look at the entire book of Isaiah or, or uh, Hosea. We're going to, I'm going to select passages to kind of give you the basic theme of the book um, and talk about it. it. It is an absolutely riveting story. It's a love story. It's a tragic story. It's a, a story of betrayal and heartbreak. It's um, a book that I think more than, than most in the, in the Old Testament really reveals the deepest nature of sin. What does it mean to sin against God? And then, painfully also, it, it really speaks of the inevitability of judgment as a consequence of sin. Do you see, God cannot be righteous. He cannot be who he is and simply overlook sin as though it did not happen. You do not, uh, you do not oppose God in his rule uh, with no consequence. There is consequence to the, the very universe. There, are con- there is a consequence to rebellion against God. And we see that um, played out most of the chapters in Hosea is God speaking very clearly that there must be consequences for betrayal and sin. But I think more than any, and if you've ever read Hosea, though there is so much threat and warning, I would venture that most people would remember it with the most tender fondness because this is a book about the triumph of God's love. God wins and his love wins. And he has determined to set his love on us. And that is enough. God gets to decide the end of every story. And his love is a conquering love. And we'll see that. Do you see that when we begin the book of Hosea, he is talking to his people. He's not talking to the godless nations. There are prophets that will prophesy to Cush or Edom or Midian to these nations who never ever claimed to be gods, never ever said that they were gods. Um, I, had a, I had a kid in class a week ago, just so blasphemous. I never said a word, and, and I just said, would you please not curse? And he was like, I didn't curse. And someone at his table said, you took God's name in vain. And he said, He's not my God. And I just, I didn't even wince at that. I'm like, of course he's not. Like, there's every evidence that he's not here. He's not claiming to belong to God. But there are people who do claim, and those people, when they speak ill or bad, it hurts me more. I, it stabs me more. To have a godless person who never claimed that God was their God to speak away or to live away or to do certain things shouldn't be surprising. That's why God doesn't tell us to recede from the world. You'd have to leave the world if you were to do that. But you are to pull away from believers or claim to be believers, but live obviously opposite of that. The problem with shunning is that it's us that need shunned. That's the problem. You start shunning people You start shunning more and more and more people. You start writing more and more people off as not consistent with the people they claim to be. Suddenly, I'm on the top of my own list that I cannot cannot live according to my own uh, 
list of virtues that I would love people to think of me. Well, God is writing to his people here. And this is, he, he's talking about very racy topic. He's talking about adultery. He is, he is basically saying that his people are treating him the same way that someone would, would treat a spouse if they are adulterous to that spouse, not in any way living according to their vows, not living according to what's right. Okay, so the problem with the, problem with the idea of adultery is it presupposes that there was love. And so what you're really sinning against is love. And that is the most heinous of crimes. So if you look at the other nations, the child sacrifices and the brutality and the horrible crimes against humanity that was everywhere around them, that's not nearly as bad as what God is claiming that his people are doing to him. That to sin against love is the worst. It's compared to nothing. Right? So when we see Hosea at the beginning, so if you'll turn to chapter 1, We'll look there in chapter 1, two verses, starting in verse 2. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and a children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. Now, whether or not that Hosea would have gone to a prostitute and actually married a woman that was already infamous in town. I don't know. It does not say that. What God said is go and marry this woman. And she eventually shows herself to be a very loose person. She has lover after lover after lover and leaves Hosea over and over repeatedly over a long period of time. He becomes the laughingstock. People know that he's the prophet of the Lord, but that somehow God can't even allow him to have a faithful wife. Everybody in town knows. Everybody in the county knows. He's notorious. But God has done something amazing in the heart of Hosea. God said, go and, lo- and love this woman. And Hosea does. Over and over and over, he never stops loving her. He doesn't just love her out of duty. He doesn't love her as a project to do to God. He adores this lady. Everything about her, he has comfort in his heart. He has joy upon looking at her, even though she stabs him with a knife again and again and again. There is no end to Hosea's love. Now, this is a miracle of all miracles. Because what God is doing is he's saying, Hosea, I want you to share my suffering. I want your life to be an object lesson of what's going on in my life. I want you to act the same way I'm acting because nobody can see me. No one can look into my heart, but they can look into your life. And I'm going to use you to show what's actually happening. Now, this happened often with the Old Testament prophets who were called on to do some absolutely outlandish things, that their lives were object lessons. Even their, their names of their children were object lessons. That something is true, and I want my prophet, my man, my person, to be the person that you're watching 
and you're seeing something very, very bigger than they are taking place. Eternal things are happening, and you're watching it happen almost like a show or a play. I want you to see their life because you can see their life. Do you see? Even James said, we don't see each other's heart. God can look upon the heart and know if you believe him or know if you have faith. But I only know you have faith by what you do. I'm looking at you, and I can see through what you do whether or not you love the Lord or don't. I can tell, especially over a long period of time, if you're a fraud or you're not. So as painful as my sin is, when I look at my sin and it's so painful, I have a very clean life. Like even my family, who you would imagine would know every single about me, I, I don't think my family think I don't have a clean life. My dearest friends who know me completely well, but do you see, I'm not comparing myself to myself. Even Paul said that. Don't compare yourself to yourself. Don't compare yourself to the five people that you know that are worse than you because those are not your standard. Your standard is to look into God himself. That's who you will be your judge. Jesus will be your judge and the standard upon which he judges. So when you look at the heart and when you see a commandment of God that you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you know that it's not, it would be a laughable matter to say that you did that. Do you see? You truly, there is a mourning quality. And there is something that's, that's true. Every believer in this room shares this in common. We have a longing a mourning over our sin. We mourn over it. We hate it. We detest it. It brings us sadness and sorrow. And we would love to hide it if we could. And we try our very best to to try to make ourselves appear as though we're living better because we couldn't possibly live that exposed to other people. And you mourn that you live, that you have an unclean mouth and that you live in a people of unclean lips. You mourn over the place you live. Do you see it? God is weaning you from this world. There will be a time when you will not sin against God. To even even imagine that is just breathtaking. That there will be a time that every inkling of my motivation will only be pure, perfectly pure, and that God will only be pleased. I need us, as we're suffering, to always remember He's already pleased to God. He is seeing our future the same as he sees our present. You are not a wicked person that will eventually be made right. You are a saved person with the record of the Lord Jesus, and you are already treated as a perfectly pleasing son or daughter. You have to remember that. But as you are kind to other people in their frailty, it's not always a bad idea to be rough on yourself. It, it, that will allow me to not simply get away with things, not be lazy, not be slothful. I live, and I know that my standard is the Lord Jesus, and I pains when I'm not like him, but he is mine, and I'm his, and God will get me all the way. And that will allow you to do something. Remember, he tells you that he chose you, then he gives you commandments. He told you that he loved you, and Hosea loved Gomer. Gomer was his wife. He loved her and loved her and never, ever, ever, ever stopped loving her. And she was dazzled. 
Now, here's a, a lady who's just like, this holy prophet is wooing me, is courting me. He wants to marry me. And so for a while, she does her very best. She tries. I'll do it. I'll be good. And she has a first son, and his name is Jezreel. Because remember, the prophets were, were doing with everything that God was doing. And God had already given a prophecy against Jehu, the king. And Jezreel was the valley where the king would finally be deposed. He would meet his end. So that firstborn son that belonged to Hosea was called Jezreel. But immediately she departs. She finds somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else. She's a repeat offender. And she is she's stabbing him in the eye because he loves her. And he loves her, and he loves her, and he never stops loving her. So Miss Jill read today in Exodus that this is what God is claiming his people are doing. You're breaking my commandments. You're whoring, is the King James word, after these other people and the things that they do and the ways they live, deplorable as they could possibly be, and you're following them as though that's what you want, and you leave me. And then you encourage things to happen. You give your children in marriage so that they'll leave me. It's adultery is what he's, he's claiming. He's claiming that marriage was that covenant of marriage is the closest that can be come up with in terms of the covenant that the Old Testament people were under. God said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will meet all of your needs. I will care for you. I will fight for you. I will provide for you. And you will be mine. And I will be the exclusive love in your life. That you do not use me in some kind of a Hindu idea that you simply add me to that already long list of gods that you already go through. You have an exclusive relationship with me. And this covenant, this covenant that seems like it makes such sense, the covenant of I will be your God and I will always be your God and I'll never leave you and forsake you and you will be my people, never worked. Why wouldn't it work? Why, why do we not have a relationship with God simply out of a promise that we make God? Do you see it? There's no human that's ever kept that promise because that's who we are. Do you see, when we fell, we don't have the ability anymore to decide that we will live for God. We, do, we don't. We lost it. And so since we lost it, this covenant of promise is just like the marriage vow. Your marriage vow is only based upon your keeping it and your spouse keeping it. There isn't a, there's no third option. It is a vow between two people and you don't have full control over it. Do you see it? So God is saying you are like an adulterous wife and it needs to pain you. It needs to pain you. God needs to tell you when there's sin so that it can be repented of, so that you can bathe it in the blood of Christ and make it go away. You cannot live in two different worlds at the same time. And so remember, Christ has not yet come. Christ died for you. You are right in him, and your covenant is not based upon your ability to obey God. Your covenant is based upon Christ's ability to obey God, and he obeyed God for you. You are accepted in the beloved. Do you see it? 
But that does not mean that we don't need this. We need this. We need this. I need to know what God is requiring of me, and I need to know that I'm willfully against it, that I'm not in myself, in my record, in my abilities, capable or that I've ever done it. I've never loved God with all my heart. I have been an adulterous wife. And so you have now an object lesson that's now lived out. So she goes off with some lover, and she's pregnant. So this is Hosea 1, 6. This is verse 6. She conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said to her, Call her name Lorurama, for I will have no mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. That girl's name was no mercy. I will have no mercy on you because it has nothing to do with me. This was your own idea. This was your own thing. This was not me. I didn't ask this. This, was not, this had nothing to do with me. This is, a, this is a result of your life and your life decisions. And I want you to call that daughter of yours no mercy, for I will have no mercy on Israel. Now, to grow up and have to write in kindergarten crayon, your name is no mercy. Knowing what no mercy means, that's what her name was. But, verse 7, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will save them by bow, nor sword, nor battle, nor horses, nor horsemen. Now, when she had weaned Lorurama, she conceived again and bore a son. So we have another lover, another, another crime, and she bare a son. Then said God, call his name Loami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So this, the third child, Jezreel, no mercy, and not my kid. That's the name of their third son, not my kid. You're an illegitimate son from prostitution, from whoredom. That is what is in your life. This is in your life that you put there that had nothing whatsoever to do with me. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not going to leave you hanging. In chapter 2, the whole second of chapter 2 is using these two kids' names to show great mercy. People who are not, that, that have not had mercy, I will have mercy on them, he says. And people who are not my people will be my people. And that passage in chapter 2 is quoted in the New Testament for us. We were the people that had no mercy. Unless you have a Jewish heritage and can trace it all the way back to Abraham, and I doubt that we can, then there was no mercy shown to us. We were not of the household of faith. We were not God's people, and there were no promises that we can claim. But the people who had no mercy, I will show mercy to, and the people who are not my people will be called my people. Do you see it? Even this judgment of these two illegitimate children is actually what God used to say This is what I'm doing in the entire universe through my son Christ. All of it will be the people who didn't think of themselves as mercy, I will be mercy. The people that were not my people will be my people. I just wanted to leave you with that because this is such full of pain. Now, when we get get to uh, chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, he begs with the kids to talk to their mother. This is pain. This is Hosea 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, 
for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away the whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as the day she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Do you see it? There has to be judgment. There has to be warning. God has to warn us. And if your conscience is actually, is actually um, buffered by the Holy Spirit, you know when you offend God. You know instantly. And you, to know that you've offended God means that you do not put it away. You deal with it now. You deal with it immediately. You admit. You confess. You confess. You say exactly the same thing God says about you. That was me, God. That was not my evil twin. That was me. And I did it because I wanted to. I did it because that's who I am. Please, through Christ, forgive me. Do you see it? That is what we do as Christians because we are as we are. Now, when we get to three, he finds her. She's run off with some man who's tired of her and sold her as a slave. And Hosea comes around the corner in the slave market, and there is his beloved wife with no clothes on, standing up on a block with people shouting and jeering and bidding on her. And he joins the bidding. He has to bid against other bidders for his wife. She is standing there completely powerless. And it's her fault But Hosea has never stopped loving her. And he bids for her, and he pays a fortune for her. He pays a fortune. He pays so much that everybody else simply says, no, too rich for my blood, and he takes her home. Now, she would have had to gone home with anybody and done whatever they insisted. She would have been at their command. But here is her husband who now comes to her. This is in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of God towards the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver, for a homer of barley, for a half homer of barley. And I said to her, Thou shalt abide with me many days. For thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man, so I will also be for thee. Do you see it? He bought her in the slave market not to sell her again. He bought her to take her out of the slave market. Right? Like like a museum buys a painting so that it's not on the market. They buy a painting so that it goes off the market. That's That's what Jose did. He bought her so that she would not be again and again and again in the same slave market. Do you see it? That is what Christ did. Redeem means to buy back again. That's what it means. To redeem is the only time, like a pawn shop is the only time we use redeem. When I have something and you give me a loan on my whatever I bring you, my pocket watch, and then if I don't bring you the, the fee plus the money again, then you sell my watch at whatever profit because you gave me so very little. To redeem means to buy it back. You buy it a second time with a fee. And that is what a redeemer does. A redeemer redeems. And Christ is our owner. He made us. Do you see it? He is our creator. We owe him 
all. If we didn't even know him, if we knew nothing about him, we would have, our whole lives are obliged to him. He made us. We weren't, we didn't exist, and now we do, and he did it. And we, we owe him all. But not only do we owe him because he's our creator, he then bought us again in, because we left. We wanted nothing to do with him. We did not chase after him. We chased after everybody. There, we just went sniffing for any, and anybody would do. It did not matter. Get me away from this loving God that loves me and is all-powerful. Get me away. I'll take anything, anybody. What, have we, what kiss have you traded God's love for? What kiss? Judas comes and kisses Christ. And that was the sign that he was the one that they should come and arrest. And he said, friend, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I'm just like, yes, I've done it. Yes, you've done it. For nothing, you've traded it for nothing. You traded everything for nothing. And we're left on a slave block, and he bought you back. He owns you twice. He owns you twice, but he owns you out of love. So it's that love, I chose you, now obey me. Live in freedom by my commandments. That's what he does. And now there's a restored union. Going quickly back to 2 that that shows this. This is verse 19 of chapter 2. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. Do you remember? I, I drew this passage up when we were in Romans. That idea that God is not just fair. He is perfectly fair. Either you will die for your crimes against him or Jesus died in your place for your crimes against him. He's perfectly fair, but he's not just fair. It, that's not ju- he's not unidimensional. He says, in judgment, yes, there will be judgment. And in righteousness, yes, I'm perfectly fair. There's justice. The justice is the root, the foundation of his throne, Psalms say. But in loving kindness, that's something we didn't know about God. He has an overbubbling loving kindness to you. And he will always treat you according to his heart. He don't think of God like you. He's not just a bigger version of you. He's not just infinitely better than you. He's not just infinitely nicer than you. He has nothing to do with us. He's, he's transcendent in every way. We don't think like him. We don't love like him. He is loving kindness that just bubbles over, and everything he does is out of that loving kindness. He killed Christ so that he could be just and the justifier of those who trust him. That is, that's what God, this is Hosea. This is Hosea, you will stay with me many days. You will not play the harlot because I will betroth you even in faithfulness. Now, the whole middle of Hosea, if you read Hosea, it gets to be Debbie Downer because once we get to five, six, seven, eight, this is, now we're not talking about Gomer anymore. Hosea's personal life is now off the table. You've looked at it, you've watched it, you've seen it. Now, I must address you, my people. I must address you. And if you do not return, if you do not return to me, I must punish. I must. 
There's thread after thread. Let's go fast. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Now, you remember Joseph's son is Ephraim. He's weak. And whenever God is speaking to, to Israel and calls him Ephraim, it's almost like when you call your kid by their full name. I don't know if you've ever done that. It, it's that idea of a full, na- a full name is as formal as you get. Okay, a, Your full name is on your driver's license. Your full name is on your college diploma. right? To say your full name means that I am using something that should be wonderful, and I'm calling you bad as a result. Do you see what you're doing? It's a, there's an irony to it. To use your full name, that's what he's saying, O Ephraim. To call him by weakness, this is who you are. What shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For my, your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as early dew, it goes away. You're like the mist that burns off by 10 o'clock. You want to be good. You act like you're good. You try to be good, and it's gone. Like, you're so consistently inconsistent that I can depend. I can put my paycheck on the table and know what you're going to do. I know what you will be. That's, you can't, I can't trust you. That's what he's saying. Look at Hosea chapter 7, a couple verses here. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Have you ever made pancakes? You wait for it, the bubbles. And as soon as the bubbles break the surface, you flip it. And as you flip it, it's golden on one side. But what happens if you were just to leave it and not turn it? Two things would happen. It would go charred black on the bottom and be gooey raw on the top. That's what he said. You are like a pancake that you didn't turn over. You're worthless in two ways. You're not done yet, and the parts of you are are nothing but charcoal. Because, because you're not right. See, you were created to live in, in complete communion with your creator. That's what you were doing. There isn't a right life to live. And as people parade and force other people to deal with them, do you see it? You can't be loud and brash enough because what happens is that when you're not right with God, you're not right with anything. Okay? You, you, can't, hold, you can't hang up a shirt by its by its arm, and not have wrinkles in your shirt. It has to, you have to do it correctly, otherwise it's not going to work. And he said, you're like a cake that's turned over. The parts of you that are cooked are burnt, and, the car, and then everything else is raw. This is verse 9 of chapter 7. Strangers have devoured your strength, and he knows not. Yea, gray hairs are there upon him, and he knows it not. You're weak, you're ineffective, you're old, and you don't even know that what's happening is that there's judgment on you. You're being judged. You're ineffective. You, you're, you're basically hanging on and you're just existing. You're not really living. Life is, eternal life is knowing God and the son that he sent. That's what Jesus said. I've come to give them life, full life, and that they might have abundant. That is what life is. Life is being right with God through Christ. That's being right. The rest, it doesn't matter. The rest is fine. Give me a poor person who's righteous with the Lord through Christ. There's a content heart. There's joy in their life. There's, there's nothing. You can't compare two people and, because they're so different. And that's what he said. You are poor and don't know it. 
the letter to the, to the churches in Revelation, you are poor, blind, and naked and don't even know it. You think you're rich when actually you're in destitution. You think you can see and you can't see at all. You're blind. You are bragging about being good when you're not. You, you're bragging about being rich when you're poor. That's what happens when you're on your own. There's, you have nothing but you to do it. And this is verse 11. Ephraim is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Oh, Egypt, Egypt. Oh, I love you. I love you. Thank you. Remember, remember last summer? That was me. Egypt doesn't care. Do you think Egypt is going to send them an army? Do you think Assyria? Oh, Assyria, Assyria, Assyria. Remember I, I gave you all the gold out of, my, out of the temple? I took, all of, I took the gold off the doors of the temple and sent it to you. Remember that? Do you love me now? And Assyria is like, no. Your lovers don't love you. That's what God is saying. You're like a silly dove that just bounces. Anything, trying, trying the best you can. And God is like, if you don't return to me, there is nothing for you. This is verse 16 in chapter 7. They return, but not to the Most High. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue and shall by their derision the land of Egypt. I'm a bow. Do you see it? You put, the, you put the arrow in, you pull it back, and you want it to go this way, but because the bow is bent, it sends it off in the other direction. Like, you, there is something built into that bow to make it bad. And that's who I am on my own. That is why, through Christ, I have all. On my own, I only have me. And that's not good enough. And it's not good enough for me. It's not good enough for my family. It's not good enough for, for God. And then we get to chapter 11. And I have to say, there is no sadder paragraph in the Bible. This is God's heart breaking. This is God himself, the almighty, the omnipotent, the eternal, the infinite, that you're looking straight into his heart. And this is who he is. He's not faking you. He's not frauding you. This is what he is. This is verse 8 of chapter 11. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee like Adma? Adma is a boy in work cursed cities, cities that were cursed out of nothing. They were completely destroyed. How shall I set thee as a boyum? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in the midst of thee, I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion, and when he roar, then the children shall tremble for the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt as he drove the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. There is a pain here, but there's, there's a ferocious roar here. This is Aslan roaring because God said, I am God. I can do what I want. I do not have to destroy thee. You make me want to destroy you. I will not because that's not my will. My will is to save you, and I will save you. And if it takes the ends of the earth, I will save you. If it takes the death of my son, I will save you. I will do whatever is necessary to bring you back to me. You are not going to win. You and your sin is not going to win. Sending you to hell the way you think you deserve is not what I want. And I get what I want. God is the king. He's the lion that roars. And he roars here and said, I will win you. And when I win you, you will be mine forever. You stop and you think, that's what God did. 
He made a people for his son so dependent and so loving to his son that you could ask anything of a true Christian. And it's not, it's not enough. It's not too much. You ask anything of me. Christ asks anything of me, and it's not too much to ask. He asks me to die of cancer. Give me the grace. He pulls me to the stake and burns me alive. Give me the grace. It does not matter. He wins. Praise God, he wins. And he wins through people like us. The adulterous wife who has nothing but a record of crimes against her husband. And he is going to get us all the way. I am God and not a man, God says. So there's pain here. You cannot look and say, oh, how can I destroy you, Ephraim? I want to save you. But you have to realize God is not impotent. God does not beg you, oh, please, please, please be nice to me, please. No, he is the one in control. And if you choose your end, you'll get it. But he has given you everything that you might come back. He's given you everything. And when he gives you everything and then commands commandment, a a heart that sees that love breaks, breaks, it breaks. So judgment, I have to say this, judgment is not God getting back at people. Do you see it? It's not God hitting the smite button on his computer and a safe falling out of the sky and slamming like a Looney Tune cartoon. That's not God's judgment. Judgment is like you plant a seed, and then two months later it grows into something. That's judgment. You plant a tomato seed and then get tomatoes. That's judgment. That's what happens as a direct result of what you did. That's what it is. So God's judgment is based upon his righteousness. Remember, I'm righteous and and judging and loving kindness. That's all of those things are true. So judgment requires. Do you remember? This is from James 1. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. You see it? It's just, it's an automatic result. That's what judgment is. So when we go back to, to Hosea, this is the judgment of God. This is from chapter 5. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, and to the house of Judah as rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, and went to Ephraim to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, he could not heal you nor the, the cure you of your wound. Do you see it? One of the most loving things God ever did for you was rot you away. And when you know it, when you realize, my life is nothing but ruin, it's rotten, God did that. He let it rot. And when you see that what I'm doing is not getting me anywhere, all it's doing is just hurting me, then that causes repentance. Do you see it? It causes repentance because that Hosea's heart never changed. That love for Gomer was always the same. God's heart has never changed. He loves you. And as you look and you see, I've got nothing. Do you remember? You're, you're longing for the pods that the pigs are eating. You're wanting them. You're like, ooh, I bet that pod tastes great. And you can't have it because they won't give you the stupid pod. And then you're like, oh, my father's servants have everything. If I could just go back there. Do you see it? God lets you feel your pain. He lets you feel the hunger. He lets you feel how clean your teeth are because you haven't eaten. 
He lets you feel it. And that pain is goodness to you. It's mercy to you. It's love and kindness to you because it brings you back. It snaps you into your senses. And then, again, the lion. This is 515. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Do you see it? It's happened in my life. When have I ever sought God? It's when I was afflicted. David said, oh, thank you. I'm so glad. This is Psalm 119. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for giving me the things I never prayed for. Thank you. This is the end of the story. This is the last chapter of Hosea. This is how it ends. Okay? I told you, you come away from Hosea not with a pain. You come away with this was the most beautiful story I've ever read. This is Hosea chapter 14. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with your words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and revive us graciously, so we will render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We'll not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods. For thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. Do you see what Christ did? The moment he died for his people, God's anger was completely turned away. There wasn't anything left. It, he only has his love for you left. There isn't anything. There's no rage. There's no anger in his voice. There's, no, there's nothing in behind his eyes. There's nothing to make you afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. When Christ saved you, he saved you from the wrath of God. There is nothing for you except love. And I will be into the dew as Israel, and he shall grow uh, as the lily and cast forth roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty like the olive tree and the smell of Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return, and they revive the corn and grow the vine, and the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I any more to do with idols? Do you see? The love of God makes me love. I love because he first loved me. That's why I love. He, te- he completely wins you. He wins you. He's more glorified by you being saved than if he were to destroy you. His son is bigger in the eyes of the universe by saving you than if you were to have died under his judgment because Jesus is made bigger. He's not bigger, but the world sees him as bigger. That's what glorifies God. I've heard of him and observed him. I'm like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who's wise? And he that understands these things, prudent and he that knows them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall. Do you see? He's effective. He can court you and win you. And I would just say, he could have been courting you your whole life. Submit. Submit to that love. Submit forever. Be the object of his love. There is threat. Most of this book is threat. But my goodness, if there is a more powerful love story, there is nothing I've ever read that's more powerful than this. I just hope that encourages you. You have a Savior who loves you. You have a God who is your husband, who won you back. And when you come back, you're, you're really back. I just, I would, I want our lives to be beautiful ornaments of God's grace and that this church love each other with 
with fervor and that we reach out. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, we love you. We love you. We love you. We thank you that your love caused us to love you. We ask that you would turn our faces towards you with full assurance of faith in Christ. And that if there are any that have never been restored or redeemed or renewed, that you would do that even now. Even now that you would say, I love you. Please be my husband. I I will return to you. And I thank you, God, that your your power is infinite, um, infinite to save, that you're almighty to save. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.